In July, Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, framed the Spanish election as a choice between democracy and autocracy. He declared that the coming election will clarify if Spaniards want a government on the side of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, of Lula da Silva or Jair Bolsonaro. And as you'll note, that July election is not really over yet. And this episode is about Spain's history and how Spain got to this point. Itself, democracia organica. It was an organic democracy. It's a very strange name, but different. Organic democracy. I've never heard that organic, before. Okay. Yeah, organic democracy. No, the fear, the main fears now is about the unity of the country. What is going to happen with Catalonia? Okay. Uh, well, the Atlantic was a, was a, uh, was, we can consider it a, a, an empty space in terms of trading be- before the Spanish Empire. Because I lived in Seville, and Seville was could be considered the Wall Street of of the 16th century in terms the of Wall Street of the 16th century. The public opinion was absolutely confident about the victory against America. Why? Oh because wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, and, and if you if you if you read the newspapers, the Spanish newspapers at the time, it's very clear. So America is a very young nation. It's a nation composed by merchants, but they are not people of composed war. with merchants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. They had no tradition. Our army had traditions and victories and so on. We have the history. Uh, backing us against the United States. Did you know that for more than three decades, Spain was a kingdom without a king, or a queen for that matter? This was during the dictatorship of General Francisco Franco, who later became prime minister and called his regime an organic democracy, which made Spain different than all the other democracies. Of course, the Spaniards were clever, They used that difference to their advertising advantage for tourism with the following slogan. Spain is different. Come to Spain. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 15, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. The tourism slogan that Spain is different, come to Spain, was a success because Spain is now the second most visited country. Anyway, if I were to sum it up, which I will, Spain's snap July elections were inconclusive. And according to my guest, 
Dr. Julio Ponce, who joined me from Seville, Spain, there will likely be another round of elections soon, perhaps in January. Basically, neither the PSOE, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, nor the Conservative People's Party, which are Spain's two major political parties, gain 176 seats, the minimum number for a majority to form a government. Interestingly, even though Prime Minister Sanchez's Socialist Party finished second, they celebrated it as a victory, because combined with their allies, they have slightly more votes than the Conservative Popular Party. Several points to note here. First, neither the Socialist nor the Popular Party have enough seats to form a government, even when combined with their allies. Second, as you've probably gathered, this election is not over will soon see part two. Third, both parties will have to rely on the extreme fringes of their political spectrum to gain more seats. And fourth, the political extreme of Spain's conservative politics is the Vox Party, which is anti-immigrant, anti-abortion, anti-EU, and anti-LGBTQ. Basically, the Vox Party is perceived as a descendant of General Franco's dictatorship that ended 50 years ago. And this is where Dr. Ponce helps us tremendously. He explains that while, similar to America, Spain's politics is highly polarized, nevertheless, Spain's society is not necessarily so, meaning it isn't polarized, or perhaps not as polarized. And we can see indications of that in the election results. Not only the far-right Vox Party didn't gain any new seats. In fact, it lost 19 seats. Dr. Ponce is the author of Gibraltar and the Spanish Civil War, 1936-1939, to Local, National, and International Perspectives. So, in this conversation, he will talk about Franco. Was this dictator really a fascist? Or is that just one simple image within the more complex picture of his rise to power? We'll also talk about the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. What was it like to live in Franco's Spain? Did Spaniards enjoy prosperity? And if so, then what about freedom? Well, Dr. Ponce told me that while you couldn't criticize Franco, you could joke about him. <laughs> in fact, he knew of these jokes. I became so curious about this that I actually looked it up in the New York Times archives and found an article about it from August 27, 1972, when Franco was 79 years old. According to the New York Times, most jokes in Spain since the 1960s were about Franco, and in the 1970s, the jokes were exclusively inspired by the notion that Franco may never die. Here's a Spanish joke from 1972. Franco declines the gift of a baby tortoise because it will live to be only 100 and he can't bear to see a pet die. I think that's pretty funny, especially in a country and a time when you couldn't say everything you wanted to say. Jokes aside, the article asks whether or not a right-wing dictatorship can become a permanent way of life in Spain. No doubt because of Spaniards' relative prosperity then. But Dr. Ponce answers that question. No, Franco's regime could not have continued after him because it was a highly personalized regime, unable to survive without the person of Franco. Now, we cannot talk about Spain without laying the foundation of its near past, that it was an empire, a global empire, 
in fact, in my opinion, the first truly global empire. And here, Dr. Ponce explains that for Spain, unlike that of Britain, the ultimate loss of empire came suddenly and was a total shock to Spaniards. They called it el desastre, the disaster. And it was us, Americans, who delivered that shock. By the way, not all is doom and gloom. In this episode, we'll also talk about Spain's golden age in the 20th century. Dr. Ponce is a professor at the Department of Contemporary History at the University of Seville. His scholarship spans research in the history of political and administrative institutions, as well as the history of the state from the local perspective, such as cities and provincial councils in Spain. His research and analysis also focus on political, social, and economic history, as well as the study of public authorities as creators of political cultures. In fact, he's the author of biographies of political figures in Seville, biographies that were awarded distinctions by the Provincial Council of Seville and the International Juan Valera Award. Dr. Ponce is the author of many books and book chapters, including the one that I mentioned earlier, Gibraltar and the Spanish Civil War, 1936-1939. to To learn more about Dr. Ponce, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Ponce and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Ponce, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. As I was preparing for my conversation with you, I stumbled on an interesting find, a discovery for me anyway. Uh, I'll share it with you and you tell me, please, whether or not I'm correct. Prior to the rise of the Spanish Empire, world history had witnessed uh, many uh, vast empires that lasted centuries, for example, the Persians, Romans, um, Chinese, and Arabs. Uh, I'm not including the Ottomans here because their rise was relatively contemporaneous with the Spanish Empire, and I didn't include the Greeks or the Mongols because they splintered relatively shortly after their founding. But Hmm. going back to these former empires, I see the following difference between them and Spain. The Spanish Empire as I see it, was the first truly global empire. Is that true, or am I making too much of this? Well, that's an an interesting uh, question. Um, I have to say that in comparison with another, with our mentioned uh, empires, we might say that the Spanish Empire was uh, was different in in terms of of uh, being a global empire. <clears throat> in fact, its geographical scope was uh, largely wider, and in fact, a lot of discoveries uh, were made by the Europeans. So I, I said uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese at that time. Just <clears throat> uh, we have to pay attention to to some facts. For instance. During the 16th century, was discovered Central and South America, the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Islands, for instance, Filipinas and Palaos, we say in Spanish, Pilio in English, the island of Guadalcanal, for instance, were mm-hmm. very famous during the Second World War. Yeah, the in war the- between Japan and the United States, the battle, mm-hmm. yeah. So even <clears throat> uh, great territories of the of the 
the current USA were discovered by by Spain by by the Spaniards. Huh? The Farland Archipelago, or the way to the, the Pacific Ocean through Panama, the Caribbean, the Andes, and so on. So, in terms of geographical, uh, from a geographical point of view, we can uh, consider that it was uh, global, because uh, the Spanish Empire, uh, empire covered uh, a, a huge uh, mainland in comparison to the Persians and so on. But I think that <clears throat> also we can consider the Roman Empire uh, global, even though in a, uh, into a smaller area. Why? Because it was an integrated world itself, considered. Because of the culture, the language, techniques. We can remember the Roman roads, the bridge, the aqueducts, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from this point of view, well, <clears throat> also the Spanish Empire had clear elements to be considered uh, a global system because of the language. Uh, yeah. Today is the second, aside from the Chinese, is the second language in the world, the culture and trading and so on. Well, let's let's speak of trade. One of the things that I keyed on as I was uh, uh, looking at the Spanish Empire just for this conversation and also from my prior uh, self-studies was trade um you know precious metals going from uh, the new world to europe going to china and these were all spanish territories does does did that scope of trade ever exist before no not at all uh, if, if we compare the the level of trading in the atlantic uh well the atlantic was a was a uh, was, we can consider it a, a, an empty space in terms of trading be, before the Spanish Empire. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. Really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, after the discovering of America, uh, they started a, a, a trade in terms of mainly silver and, and gold, and also products that uh, come from Europe to, to America. So, here in, in, in Spain, mainly in the south, because I lived in Seville, and Seville was could be considered the Wall Street of of the 16th century. In terms the of Wall Street of the 16th century. Yeah, without doubt, because here we have a lot of population that come from Germany, that come from Flanders, from Italy, and it was a quite capitalist city at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very international. Uh, today, uh, we cannot say that because, well, Seville is a, is, a, is a town of the south of Spain, mainly addressed to tourism and so on. No? And we could say even that this, between quote marks, is a decadent city. because a Decadent the, the city. Decadent city because, the well, the past of Seville was uh, quite great in, in, that, in that way, you know. And in Seville, we have a uh, we we were the the Europeans that first knew tobacco, the tomato, uh, a lot of products that comes from that, and mainly for sure the, the silver and gold and so on. No? And we exported also products to America, uh, for instance, the the horses. And some European products that they didn't uh, know it. Also, the viruses. 
<laughs> that wiped out native the, populations. Yeah, that tells of the. Um, the why, why do you call Seville the Wall Street of the 15th century? Did they finance and provide insurance for shipping and all of that? Is that where it all came? So this is in contrast to, like, let's say, the banks in in um, Italy, for example, in Florence or or in Siena, right? Yeah, yeah. Mainly, is the was it was because of the port. The, the port, port. The, yeah. The port was uh, um, one hundred kilometers aside from the open sea, so it was a very secure port. Oh, that's and ideal uh, harbor conditions. It, yes, it's ideal in terms of security because the the sh- uh, ships. Came into the, the Guadalquivir River and arrived to Seville. And Seville was a very well uh, was very secure. Both shores of the river were was uh, were defended, pretty well defended. And Seville was a, a, a very interesting port. And since the products came to Seville, for instance, silver and gold, a lot of merchants from across Europe came here to Seville, and also bankers and traders, insurance companies, and so on. A lot of them. I see. Yeah, and what is also an interesting point is that the system of convoys, the same that the system of the convoy system uh, that were used during the Second World War uh, by the Allies against the attacks of the German submarines, well, that system of convoys, so to concentrate the shipping in order to defend the the trade and, and, and in the sea <clears throat> was invented by by Spain at the time. The ships didn't come here alone. The ships there was a convoy that comes every year, uh, the convoy of the year, in order to to secure the silver and the gold mainly. So there would be a convoy of armed ships along with merchant ships, kind of like yeah. a caravan in the sea, if you will, to make sure they're yeah. safe passage, which surely that safe passage became an issue with the British uh, as they rose in, in power. Um, you and I could have five podcasts on the history of the Spanish Empire. So yeah. w- what I want to do is actually fast forward to an episode about the Spanish empires that us Americans, which were so American-centric, know about, and that's the um, um, the Spanish-American War of 1898. Pretty much all um, uh, American high school students know about Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, and you know, and the march up the hill in in Cuba. Um, we we sort of here in America we celebrate that as American. Uh, you know, strength and what what have you, although that narrative is changing. But the reason I bring it up is this. In Spain, and please help me with this uh, pronunciation, it was it, it, this this episode, the loss of Cuba and, 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 and the Philippines and Puerto Rico was known as El Desastre, the disaster. So what what I'm what I'm curious about, Dr. Ponce, is this. Was it a disaster because territory was lost in 1898? Or was it a disaster from the Spanish point of view because it was a recognition that we are not 
a global empire anymore? Hmm. That's a well. That's a very relevant qu question, um, and it's also sensitive in the way I'm going to 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 try to explain. Well, it's true that the perception differs uh, dramatically uh, between the United States and, and Spain uh, around that, that, that war. But why uh, the outcome of that war was a, a disaster? Disaster del 98, we say in Spanish. It was because it, uh, <clears throat> because it was a shock. A um, shock. A shock, a collective shock in the in the mentality of of, of Spain, but uh, it wasn't because of the loss of colonies or the end of the global empire. Because if we pay attention to to history, uh, most of territories and um, were lost uh, around eighteen twenty five. So many. Yeah, all the South American independence movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boulevard and, and what have you. Yeah, the only territories we have were Puerto Rico, Filipinas, and, and Cuba. And from that point of view, I don't think that, uh, I'm not sure. Um, I, I dare to say that it, it, the shock was not uh, the result of, of the loss of territories. No, I think that the shock, um, to understand the shock, we have to pay attention to some factors. The first, <clears throat> the first one was that the, uh, the transformation of a sort of civil war between Cuba and Spain into an international war. Because for Spain, Cuba was a Spanish territory. Yeah. More than Philippines. Even more than Puerto Rico. And, and for the mentality of, of the Spaniards at the time, well, Cuba was very close. In fact, La Habana uh, is very similar to the city of Cadiz. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what city in Cuba? Repeat that, please. La Habana. Havana. Oh, oh uh, Havana. Okay, yeah, yeah. Havana. La Habana is quite, quite similar to, to Cadiz, no? Interesting. Yeah, and um, in addition to that, Spain was very ill-prepared to tackle an international war, not to tackle a civil war that was, uh, it was... Uh, the, the, the war against Cuba, uh, uh, the Cuba and, and Spain. We had budget problems uh, uh, for the army and the navy, mainly for years. And meanwhile, we were ill prepared. The public opinion was absolutely confident about the victory against America. Why? Wow. Oh wow, because that is fascinating. Yeah, and, and if you if you if you read the newspapers, the Spanish newspapers at the time, it's very clear. So America is a very young nation, it's a nation composed by merchants, but they are not people of composed war. with merchants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. They had no tradition. Our army had traditions and victories and so on. We have the history. Uh, backing us against the United States, even the <clears throat> the, the the cartoons uh, represented the United States as a tiny peak wrapped with the, the American flag. Meanwhile, Spain was represented as a as an old lion. Uh, so this is old, like the cartoons and newspapers. Yeah, newspapers. Yeah. Old 
that a lion. So an old lion is going to 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 devour. The, uh, yeah, the yeah. little pig. And um, another factor was the 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 cost for the war. I mean, the main the, the explosion of the of the. American ship Maine over yeah. by the harbor. Yeah, because uh, well, the mm, the war was declared because of the Maine. Yeah, and it was clear, and nowadays it's pretty clear that it wasn't uh, the outcome of a Spanish conspiration. Still today, we don't know what happened. And the, what we do is, know is that the Spanish didn't do it, but we Americans use that as a as an excuse to go to war anyway. Yeah, yeah, and still today, and this is the the, the uh, very interesting relation: the past and the present. Still today, is a very sensitive point uh, to the extent that the well, the many scholars didn't uh, tackle the question: well, uh, how was sunk the main? And there are some books and articles and so on, but still today is a is a, a sort of uncomfortable issue to be to be studied because the relationship between the current relationship between Spain and the United States is pretty good. There's American bases, the trading, and so on, no? and and this is a, a sort of uncomfortable uh, point in the past. Yeah, yeah. But it's really interesting. I have, <clears throat> it's not my main topic of research, but I'm interested uh, personally about uh, what happened with the main. Um, and it's curious because the the, um, uh, the most interesting points I have, uh, I have seen is that the, the personal documents of the captain of the ship, 6B, yeah. Yeah, because uh, when <clears throat> one can read the, the the his letters and personal documents, <clears throat> which are placed in Albany, uh, one uh, has well the dots arises when one read that letters because. Uh, he was a captain of the main, but on the other hand, he took some measures uh, that um, drives to a lower defense of the ship at the time. Oh, wow, really interesting. I think what you're driving at is that the captain of the ship may have been part of, may have sort of, facilitated this disaster that eventually led to war is that where you're going yeah yeah it's yeah it's difficult and it's difficult to say (laughs) yeah i didn't publish anything about it but even though even when when you see the documents and the description of the documents uh uh, and this uh call my attention the description of the general documents of the the personal documents of Captain Sixby was a. <clears throat> it's not clear if he was a willing participant. When I say that's fast, you should publish something about this. That would be I, fascinating. I, I, it would be yeah, controversial, and a lot of people would read it. Um, I, I wanted to switch gears, um, and and ask you a question. Uh, 
that that's been very much in my mind. Um, uh, I just came back from vacation from the United Kingdom, and you and I were exchanging emails, and you were in England as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is do you think there are any parallels between the decline of the Spanish Empire and the decline of the British Empire now? I appreciate that the decline of the Spanish Empire occurred much yeah. earlier. Um, mm. any, any anything here to chat about? Well, I <clears throat> I wouldn't say there are similarities. I think they're pretty different in that way. Well, pretty different because. Uh, Occurred in in different uh, at different times, no? Yeah. But also, the the um, the loss of the Spanish Empire, not because of Cuba before, no. During the 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 decade of the twenties, uh, during the eighteenth century, uh, was uh, uh, very abruptly, no, very suddenly, we lost the empire, the most of the the, the empire, and mm-hmm. um, and Spain during the nineteenth century. Uh, was a very decadent country. It's not. Uh, <clears throat> it 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 wasn't the case of UK. The UK uh, started to lose the empire, having won one war, the Second World War. Yeah. So the the atmosphere is different. Spain were were losing battles and losing wars at that time. And it was a decadent country. And in fact, during the 19th century, we we had three civil wars before the the great civil war uh, uh, during the 20th century. So um, the British case is, is is different because, well, they started to 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 get rid of the empire uh, along. The second half of the 20th century that keep a lot of influence, uh, the city of London, control of international finances, and from that point of view, is completely uh, different. If we want to look for some similarity, maybe we can, um, uh, maybe we can say that when you lost the empire, in the case of Spain, in the case of Britain, uh, uh, some problems of national identity arises. So uh, interesting, which is big in the UK right now. Yeah, because in the case of Spain, the the Basque country and Catalonia started, uh, uh, and and the nationalism in Basque country and Catalonia uh, was pretty increased after the Cuba's war, the, the Spanish American War. Interesting. And yeah, and now, well, there are some problems of uh, national identity in the mainland of UK, you know, in terms of... Well, of course, Scotland. Scotland, Wales, and so on. Right? Um, Dr. Ponce, I, I want to make sure that I understand what you mean by the following um, term that you use several times uh, in the course of the last few minutes. Decadent. You've said several times that Spain was decadent during the 19th century, and earlier you referenced to it as well. Yeah. What do you mean? How was it decadent? Decadent is the, the, a country that has lost the empire and has lost uh, uh, international influence. Uh, its economy is a, is a mess, and there are a lot of social problems. So it's, that, uh, it's a country that goes downhill. Okay. Uh, this is the term I used 
país, país decadente, so it's all país en decadencia, is, uh, is a country that is, is losing weight. No? I see, uh, I see. Outside and, and inside. I see. And I'm sorry that that was the situation of Spain during the 19th century and a huge part of the 20th century as well. I see. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about Spain under Franco. We'll be right back. Later in this episode, you will hear Dr. Ponce express regret and also explain the polarization of Spain's politics. But as you well know, polarized politics is not unique to Spain, not even by a long shot. After our own polarized midterm elections here in November 2022, Dr. David Schultz explained how America became so polarized. He provides statistics and sober analysis of how campaign managers can figure out how we vote. But then he added something quite incredible, which I wasn't expecting at all. He stated that within a decade's time, America will not be as polarized as it is today. I've dropped a link to my conversation with Dr. Schultz in Season 2, Episode 39. And yes, he does explain why America will be less polarized in the future. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Ponce about Spain's history and politics. Dr. Ponce, to varying degrees, most Americans know of Spain's civil war in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, for example, Ernest Hemingway famously wrote about it, his novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is very famous. Um, yeah. And in a way, the Spanish civil war was uh, the rehearsal, a dry run, if you will, um, for the opening of World War II. Um, I'm not, I don't want to talk about what happened or narrate that history. What I'm interested in is what was Franco's regime's uh, ideology? Was it just for power? Mm, well, uh, uh, this, uh, it's a very interesting question and it's not easy to, to give a simple answer for that, no? But, <clears throat> Well, uh, if I understood well, uh, you mean that uh, you're uh, asking if Franco wanted the power? Of, uh, well, um, of course you wanted power. What I was wondering is, what was his real ideology? Okay, okay. Well, <clears throat> uh, according to a very popular belief, it's easy to, to put the, the qualification of Franco as a fascist, and that's all. But, yeah. but, yeah, but it's not clear. It's not clear because, uh, well, the, the Spanish Civil War started as a result of a, um, anti-Republican coalition, uh, integrated by phalanges. They were real fascists, but also, uh, there were monarchists, uh, Catholics, um, people that comes from the right, even from the center-right, it was a very uh, heterogeneous coalition against the republic. Uh, but that coalition needed the, the, the army to move the, 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 republican, the republican government. And in that way, the army played a key role. And within the army, Franco played the, the, the most 
most outstanding role in that in that way. And he took the power from the beginning, almost from the beginning of the war, the civil war, because the civil war started in July, and he took the power as chief of the state in October of that year. And uh, was that 1936? 1936, currently. Yeah. And he took the power, and he never got rid of the power. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was forever. In fact, there was a general, General Cabanillas, who said when he knew that Franco took the place of the, 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 the power and the charge of chief of the state, he, this man will be in power forever. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe yeah. you're answering the question that I was attempting to ask. Uh, what I was trying to figure out is whether or not Franco had a vision for Spain or was he an opportunist to grab power, whether it be it under fascist ideology or Republican ideology. Um, I guess that's the real question. Did he have a certain, did he aspire for Spain to go somewhere in the future? No. Well, <clears throat> I wouldn't say so. But I have to say, so, so I wouldn't say so in terms that he didn't know what is going to happen in 20 or 30 years uh, after the, the Civil War. No? Yeah. But I have to say that he was very clever to adapt his regime to the international atmosphere. No? And in that way, uh, he began uh, uh, during the civil, uh, his principle and his uh, aim during the Spanish Civil War was to destroy the Republic. Why? Because the right, the conservatives, the monarchs, the monarchs, and also the Catholics had fear of the Second Republic because the Second Republic uh, uh, started a policy making very close to the left and even with uh, relationships as, as we are going to see it in during the civil war with uh, the Soviet Union and so on. Oh, so, like with Stalin and all of that, I see. Yeah, yeah. And, and Franco took the opportunity to, to win the war with the help of, the, of Italy, with the help of uh, Germany, but mm -hmm. also also, and this is a very important point, with the help of the British government, <laughs> and, yeah, and and with uh, even with uh, with the help of, of some American enterprises, now Texaco, for instance. No? And in the case of the British government, well, I have a book about Gibraltar and the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, it was published by Bloomsbury and and some years ago, and it was clear that the British authorities in the Rock. Uh, supported uh, the, the 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 nationalists uh, within the frame of a formal neutrality. So the non-intervention committee. We are here, but we are not with the republic, and we are not with the nationalists. But uh, deep down, they helped the nationalists a, a, a lot. And for instance, from Gibraltar, the nationalist fleet was supported with oil. And with uh, tracks and with a lot of help, even with communications, 
Um, meanwhile, the Republican fleet was expelled from the from the Bahia de Algeciras, Algeciras Bay, yeah, yeah. very close to Gibraltar, and they didn't supply the the Republican fleet. For instance, no? well, in the book I have a, a lot of a lot of demonstrations about the support of the British. Fleet. And and this is. Uh... Probably, I take it, because the British and some of the American enterprises, such as Texaco that you mentioned, just didn't want a communist government in Spain. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's true. So, and, and also, in fact, just to introduce the nuances, we had an, a, a communist government in Spain. It was a You did? We didn't have. Oh, you didn't we have. We did not have. We did not have a communist, a proper communist government. But yeah. Was a Republican socialist government, democratic, but the links with the Soviet Union and the influence of the Communist Party was very huge. And immediately, uh, from London and from another uh, cities, the the warning calls, <laughs> the warning lights uh, appears, and and well, the nationalist solution was more comfortable for Britain. That the that the continuation of the Second Republic. I see. So, what was Spain like uh, under Franco? What was it like to live in Spain when he was uh, the leader? Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to say that living under Franco's regime uh, was. Very different if we compare the 40s or the 50s or the 60s or even to the 70s. So what you're saying is that even the regime itself evolved and changed, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the regime, in the the main principles and the main essences of the regime didn't change. Franco was there, but the uh, the society, the economy, even the mindset of the youngers uh, changed. Completely during mainly during the the fifties and the sixties. So it was. <clears throat> I have to say that for sure there were tortures and prisons and so on, but just for a minority of the population. I have to say that most of the of the people, well, started to grow. You can buy during the sixties. You can buy a house. You can buy a little car of a of a bike. You can improve your life if you work, and if you don't get in, uh, in political problems. So um, it was a mesocratic country, if I could say so. It's a it's a a country uh, integrated by a huge medium class. That was very neutral. Well, Franco is here. I'm going to do exactly what the power um, wants me to do it, and and so on. So <clears throat> there were uh, another interesting quest question is that during the 60s, for instance, the tourism, the European tourism, <clears throat> come to Spain, and the regime invented a slogan. Uh, uh, Spain is different. Come to Spain. In terms of <laughs> oh, that's clever. Great, <laughs> right, yeah. Because, um, well, Spain is different in comparison to the rest of Europe. 
we are a democracy, we are a democracy uh, from a formal and official point of view. Uh, the regime in Spain was uh, called itself Democracia Organica. It was an organic democracy. It's a very strange name, but different. Organic democracy. I've never heard that organic, before. Okay. Yeah, organic democracy. And it was a, a, the Spanish way to a democracy. So uh, it was a very secure country with uh, sun, with beach, with paella, and so on, and very cheap. So and, what you're saying is that people could do well, the middle class thrived, as long as they pretty much stayed out of uh, big politics and didn't rock the boat. Uh, and and when you say organic democracy, I just want to make uh, make sure I understand. Were elections held? Yeah, but elections that were controlled by the power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right, yeah. I got it. That sort yeah. of elections. Yeah. And um, that, uh, excuse me, I have to say that not only is a huge part of the Spanish population was pretty comfortable in that way. Also, the tourists, when came to Ibiza, Canary Island, or in the coast, the Costa del Sol, uh, they can do whatever they want. So, with liberty, and if you can, if you want to get drunk, or if you want to sell <laughs> drugs, and so on. So. From that point of view, it was a very strange country. What you cannot do in Seville or in Madrid, you can do it in, in, in Malaga or in Marbella. Or, or but those. when you say you cannot do, you're talking about tourists having a good time. You're not talking about uh, why couldn't tourists get drunk, let's say, in Seville, in mainland Spain, where there are religious and social norms that they would violate? I would say social norms. Have, for, for instance, that well, to be naked in a in a, on the beach, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, it was not possible. In yes. the, but it was possible there. There, there was a tolerance for a tourism uh, for a tourists uh, at that places. <clears throat> I remember, for instance, uh, documents about the, the the civil governors of uh, Balearic Islands or in Malaga. So, uh, uh, that Madrid, the government of Madrid, uh, used to indicate them that, well, this is a special province, be more, uh, tolerate. <laughs> oh, more I calm. see. Yeah, because we need that money. We For need tourism. Appearances. Yeah. Um, just to cap off this discussion of life under, uh, Franco, which, I mean, could be a huge topic in itself. I just, I just want to make sure that I don't leave this question. Freedom of speech must have been limited. Yeah. Yeah. At that time in Spain, freedom yeah. of speech was, was it limited towards the central government and Franco? Or could you, for example, in the 1960s, write an article and criticize the mayor of Seville? Okay. That's a very interesting question. Uh, well, uh, there were untouchable issues or topics. Untouchable. So, untouchable topics. For instance, you cannot, uh, you cannot write an article against Franco or against the government openly. Okay. okay. But you, yeah, but you can, uh, write 
articles in local newspapers uh, criticizing some measures uh, taken by the city council or even the mayor and so on. In Interesting. Yeah, in provinces. Interesting. It was very clear. You cannot write against the governor because the governor was the representation of the central government. But on the other hand, you can criticize the, some members of the city of the city council, even the mayor, even sometimes the Catholic Church, uh, and you can defend um, an, an opening of liberties. So <clears throat> it, it was a it was a quite a strange atmosphere at that time during the sixties, because writers didn't know exactly the limits of the freedom of a speech. The There's a lot of vagueness there. It's like, how far can I push this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was difficult because some writers, uh, when when we re uh, read those articles today, well, wow, he's saying a lot of things here. Yeah. And, and there is... You mean he's exercising a lot of liberty. He's being daring. Yeah. And yeah. these writings <clears throat> uh, weren't punished. And another, by saying nonsense, well, very light uh, things, they were punished with a fine or something like this. No? Uh, and, and it was very, very curious. It, it, and, uh, I guess yeah. it kind of depended on which one the censorship uh, uh, bureau or whatever people in charge of censorship picked up and who they targeted. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. and also about, uh, uh, an official way of doing things and an unofficial <clears throat> or real uh, way of doing things. I don't For know instance, what you mean by that. Well, there were a lot of jokes of Franco in the streets. And, oh, really? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of jokes about Franco and about the regime and about even the, the Catholic Church or the religion and so on. And this this was the an official way of doing things. So as the society uh, did things at the time, and there were <clears throat> another level, the official level, uh, that everything was fine. No, everything was fine. I love time. that. So let me just, as you say, you know, the unofficial. Yeah. Uh, was make, you know, let's say you're in the street, you're having a cigarette, you're having a drink, a cup of coffee, yeah. and you make jokes about. Franco, yeah. Yeah. Um, th that brings up this question. How would you know that the person with whom you're joking around is not a government-affiliated person or a, an outright <laughs> government informer? Would they not go tell on you, or it, or it wasn't that bad? Well, because a joke wasn't a very important thing in the, mentality, in the mentality of the Spaniards at that time and today, because it's... Well, it's the irony, it's a joke, and it's not important. Another thing, if, if you are talking uh, to someone uh, preparing a conspiracy or a violent act or something like this, this could be really different. But the jokes and the, um, have a relaxing time and so on, it, it was not a problem. In fact, the knew this, and Franco knew the jokes. He, he knew the jokes. Yeah. How do yeah, you know yeah, that? Yeah. Why do you say that? Well, because uh, there are some, well, there are some some informations that, well, that, uh, 
some friends of Franco, close friends of Franco. Well, there are some jokes. Yeah, some jokes about me and about the the, the president of the government or the second of the regime, who which was the uh, Admiral Carrero Blanco, or about the, the Catholic Church. So, uh, it, it, uh, during the sixties and um, and the seventies, the, the situation was. Uh, is it was not a perfect situation it was a dictatorship but we cannot compare that dictatorship with uh, with uh, the, the the system of the of of east europe for instance yeah or like soviet union yeah you're right or like yeah. in, in east germany it seems like from what you described um the combination of the ability to sort of unofficial channel, sort of make light, make jokes about the government, including uh, Mr. Franco um, um, himself, and also the ability to criticize local officials for local problems or what have you. That's that, that was allowed. It almost gave a pseudo sense of freedom and ability to vent a little bit so that you know, the society doesn't blow up. Uh, that's yeah. really interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about democracy and monarchy in Spain. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy. And also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Ponce, in the last segment, we talked about Spain under Franco, under his dictatorship. So how did Spain transition from Franco to democracy? Well, the regime of Franco was a personal regime. It was not a regime supported by uh, a unique political party or even supported by uh, a concrete ideology. It was a personal regime. Ah. And the problem was uh, the problem when Franco died, and even before Franco died, uh, the problem was if it was possible to continue the Francoism without Franco or not. And the political elite knew perfectly that a personal regime was not possible to be continued without. The main piece that was that was Franco, and from that point of view, they started a transition. And well, they started a, trans- a transition without a concrete guideline, but they knew that something has to change. When did Franco die? Nineteen seventy-four, nineteen seventy-five. Nineteen seventy-five. Okay. 1975, and they knew that the the, the things are, are going to change. In fact, the new chief of the state was King Juan Carlos, no? Juan Carlos the okay. first, and he was nominated as future king in 19, 
1869. Uh, Franco was alive and he decided that, that the, the future uh, for Spain will be a, a monarchy. Mm. Not as under uh, his regime, because the situation of Spain under the Franco's regime was very particular, very strange, if you, if you allowed me to, to qualify it like this, because it was a kingdom, the kingdom of Spain, but without a king. It was only Franco. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. wait, say that again. It was a kingdom and Spain didn't have a kin- king? Yeah. Yeah, the Spanish was officially a kingdom, the kingdom of Spain, since 1947. 1947, imagine, a lot of years, during a lot of years, up to the death of Franco in 1975, we were a kingdom, but without a king. The king was, <laughs> yeah, outside the country. And the, the well, the legitimate. The, the legitimate uh, uh, king was um, Juan, but Juan was in Portugal, exiled. And the son of Juan, the Conde de Barcelona, the Count yeah, of Barcelona, yeah. it was uh, uh, Juan Carlos. And Juan Carlos, in 1969, received the nomination of uh, Príncipe de España, so the Spain, uh, Spanish prince with uh, the possibility to become king of Spain after the death of Franco. And and that's exactly what happened. In, that is in, fascinating. Yeah. And so, the, and the whole royal family, you said, lived in, uh, not, I don't know if whole, but they lived in essentially exile in Portugal. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have so many questions to ask all of a sudden, but I'm going to limit it to the following. Yeah. Um, Franco established this personalized regime that yeah. didn't outlive him. But at some point, when the transition does begin, his, his I don't know, the military men that followed him, the military men that did the tortures or security apparatus, uh, all the people that were involved in his regime they were still there. How did they yeah. transition to democracy? Was there like a bloodbath, people going and getting revenge from them? Did they stay in government? Did they flee Spain? Because the whole thing didn't collapse at once, <clears throat> right? What happened yeah. to those people? Yeah, well, there is an interesting concept, um, well, created, discovered, I would say, by the famous politologist um, uh, Juan Jose Linz, Professor Linz, in the United States, okay. <clears throat> living in the United States, and it was a concept of estateness. What we, the strong point in Spain wasn't the regime itself, but the, the, the stateness, the stability of the state. And when Franco died, <clears throat> uh, a transfer of loyalties came up. The loyalties that were supporting Franco immediately supported the system. So, King Juan Carlos. And King Juan Carlos started a, a, a process, he started only the process of transition, even with elements of the Francoism. In fact, Adolfo Suarez, the first uh, democratic president in Spain, 
came from the movimiento, came from the 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 Francoism. So uh, from that point of view, uh, we change the regime from a dictatorial regime to another democratic one, but keeping the stateness. That is to say, the civil servants, the army, the people that were working with the state kept their positions in general terms. Another thing was the extreme right politicians. The extreme right politicians that supported Franco, but now into the frame of a democratic regime, they don't fit into yeah. the well they were um they were erased so they don't understand they didn't understand what was happening and they they even they they didn't what to do without franco franco was the reference and without franco they didn't have a proper ideology a proper project for spain so they sort and, of faded uh, out of politics and out of yeah. power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's the reason why uh, Adolfo Suarez, the first uh, the first president, had um, enjoyed a margin of uh, liberty uh, to change the situation, establishing contacts with the political opposition, mainly with the Socialist Party, even with the Communist Party to take them into a consensus to make a democracy work. Because at that time, the past, the Spanish past, played a key role in terms of, okay, uh, in, a, in a very uh, single explanation, okay, Franco has died, well, what we do you prefer? A new civil war or a democracy in which we can live all together with our differences oh. and in peace. What do you prefer? And and at that time was very clear. Uh, was very clear. The no one wanted another civil war. Yeah, the moderation at that I time. The yeah, the moderation, the tolerance were key concepts at that time, and the dialogue as well. Yeah, and the the nineteen thirty civil war was still within living memory. Of many yeah. people in Spain, so they knew. Before we leave this segment, um, uh, Dr. Ponce, uh, I wanted to make sure I understand the following system and terminology. Um, Spain is a decentralized, unitary country. It's not, uh, as I understand, this is not a federal system like the United States, and it's not a federation system like they have in Russia. Um, so, what is a what is a decentralized unitary country? Uh, I've never heard that phrase. Yeah, well, it, it officially is called the state of the autonomies, estado de las autonomías, no? Okay. And yeah, this is the official name, and I have to say that it's not a federal system, mm -hmm. and it's not a confederal system. Because for us, given the uh, differences between the Spanish regions, mainly the case of Catalonia and the case of Basque country, but also Galicia and Andalusia and so on, if we, <clears throat> if we, um, take 
the model of a federal system is a problem because it's too unitarian. If we take the, another model, the confederation is too risky. It really it was risky in America in the, yeah. in the 17, uh, yeah. 70s and 70s and 80s, yeah. Yeah, because it's an open door towards the in the possible independence of some territories. So we uh, choose uh, a middle point system, which is uh, which is very interesting because it's it's in the middle of a federation and a confederation. I would say that. Uh, until now, is closer to a federal system without being a proper federal system. Yeah, and is always um, is always uh, support on dialogue, mainly uh, for the for financial questions. So I see. Uh, yeah. How the money should be distributed into the different autonomies. Uh, one autonomy is pressure. When, when, when you say autonomy, for example, when I think of the Basque country or the Catalonia, are yeah. they truly autonomous? Or uh, it's not like Catalonia can go and enter into uh, foreign policy conversations with Italy? Or, uh, no, no, no. no that's, this, they have limits within that autonomy, right? They are, they are only uh, autonomous regions not only Catalonia and Basque country, the rest of the country, Andalusia uh-huh. or even Madrid, the uh-huh. community of Madrid is, a, is an autonomous, uh, autonomous region. And they, <clears throat> we don't have, the autonomies don't have the, the competence of uh, foreign policy or, or defense. Those are central, uh, central competences of the central uh, government. The, the main problem is uh, in, in Spain, with autonomies is the is the uh, the financial question because some autonomies wants more more resources and the problem is well I have to distribute the money yeah among all the uh, different regions so what are we going to do for instance the case of Catalonia uh-huh. has been very famous which Catalonia. is rich and produces a lot of income. Yeah, they produce a lot of income, but they produce a lot of income outside Catalonia, which what? is a problem. Yeah. Oh. Because Cat- yeah, Catalonia produces a lot of income, and there are enterprises in Catalonia that produce a lot of income, but the, 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 most of their operations are in the rest of the, can- of the country. For instance, there are tourist operators. Oh, I see. I see. The main yeah, the the headquarters is in Barcelona, but they get the most of the benefits of the their benefits from Canary Islands or, or from Andalusia. So it's a very complex situation in that way. And so the in, question is, how do you distribute the taxes from that to all of Spain or just Catalonia? Yeah, and that's the problem. And when uh, after the crisis, after the crisis of two thousand eight, started the crisis, the financial of- crisis. Yeah, the financial the, crisis. Yeah. But in the case of Spain and in, in, in the concrete case of, uh, of uh, Catalonia, uh, the region of the independence essay made by the uh, Catalan government in 2017 was financial because 
of the Catalan government said, okay, we have a financial problem, we have an economic problem, not only in Spain, in, in the world, but we don't want to pay the problem. So we want to keep our life safe. <laughs> and we want more. And the problem is that if you give more to Catalonia or you give more to Basque country, what about the rest of the regions? Yeah. And uh, they started to make pressure. Okay, if I don't get what I want, uh, I'm not only will make pressure uh, on a financial way, but also I'm going to start to, to talk about independence and so on. And the pressure, oh, well, everybody knows what happened no, with Catalonia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the origin was not a, a political problem. The main origin was a financial problem. Yeah, and we have a problem today. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the U.S., we have similar problems, but but sort of independence is not something that is often talked about, as you well know. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Ponce as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Ponce, since 2018, Spain has faced an institutional crisis surrounding the mandate of the General Council of the Judiciary. What is this? Yeah, the General Council of the Judiciary <clears throat> is the main institutional uh, power of the of the judges, and, and they are composed by uh, a number of judges uh, theoretically selector, selected for um, under independence uh, criteria. So this is a, an organ that decides when a judge has to be retired or the, when a judge uh, has to be changed of the, of the past and so on. It's a very important organ in, in institutional organs in terms of it's the third power of the, of the country third power but so the, the way you described it as i understand it general council of judiciary itself is not a court it's it's it's, it's administrating the judicial system correct exactly okay exactly okay. yeah and the problem is that this institution was created to guarantee the independence of the judiciary power. So but, far, this sounds good. What's the problem then? Yeah, the problem is that the members are nominated by the political parties. <laughs> and that's the problem. And we have that is, problem in America. Yeah, but this is a clear contradiction. If you, uh, if you ask my personal point of view, okay, they should be independent, completely independent and the nomination uh, of the of the members of the of the uh, general council of the judiciary uh, cannot be selected from the political parties, and and the main problem we have is that the popular party and the socialist party, that is to say, the center right, 
and the center left didn't agree about the composition of this council. And they stuck. Uh, the members has not been renovated, renovated, and we have a problem in in terms of the the daily work of the of the of the judges. Well, you mean because of disagreement between the two parties of who should be in the general council of judiciary, new members to that council have not been nominated. So now yeah. it's stuck yeah. with, yeah. oh, that's really interesting. They talk openly about judges. This judge is conservative. This judge is progressive. This judge uh, is uh, half uh, from the Popular Party. This is very friendly for the socialists. And since then, as the Popular Party and the Socialist Party didn't come to an agreement, well, the, the system is... Uh, is uh, almost collapsed, and, and and we have a problem. We have uh, deep down, we have a problem of polarization nowadays. Polarization. Did that yeah. spill over? Did this did this problem of polarization impact your recent elections? Yeah, and it's clear. The outcome is very clear because we uh, the the results of the election, the outcome of the of the last elections was a block of the right and a block of the left. And the difference between them is few MPs, four, five, and we don't know if we are going to if we are going to, to form a new government or we will have uh, a new elections in, in probably in January of the next year. Because when you say um the polarization. The problem is not the parties. When you say a block on the right and the block on the left, uh, the way I envision this, the way the way I sort of picture this in my mind is that your in 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 Spain's political landscape, the right and the left already have their diehard sort of uh, loyal followers uh, and there's very little left in the middle to compete for is that what is that what you're referring to because we have that problem in america really independent voters are shrinking and shrinking more are being republican more are being democrat and there's fewer and fewer votes to really compete for is that a phenomena is that a thing in spain or did i get that wrong it's not exactly the same because in the united states you know perfectly you have a, a two-party system yeah. We don't have a two-party system. We have a proportional system. Yeah. The main problem here is that we have two big um, parties, the Popular Party on the right and the Socialist Party on the left. But aside from these um, big uh, parties, we have the extreme right and the extreme left uh, parties. Not to speak about the Nationalist parties, which is another problem, no? And the the drama of the Spanish polarizations nowadays is that it's impossible an agreement between the center right and the center left. So, if you want a majority in the parliament, the right needs the extreme right, and the left needs the extreme left. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And this is a very bad way 
of doing things under my personal point of view, not only as a, as a scholar or an academic. Because if the right wants to, uh, wants the government, they need to include people from the extreme right. And vice versa, no? On the yeah. This is well known it is in another European countries. It's not the case of Spain. You have to look at Sweden or Italy and so on. But in, in the case of Spain, the majority of the population votes for the center right or the center left. Oh, I see. And I'm, yeah, and a minority votes for the extreme right or the extreme left. The problem is that we don't know why we cannot reach an agreement as the as in the German system, the the Socialist Party and the CDU in yeah, Germany yeah. reach agreements and they have shared governments without problem. But here is impossible. And probably one of the, the, the problems we have in, in Spain nowadays is that the that the spirit of the transition, this ability to dialogue between the center Right and the center left. Now it has disappeared. Oh wow! And, yeah, and we have a problem of of a, a deep polarization in that way. A depolarization in the parliament because it, it, at the level of the street in the in the daily life, you cannot perceive a a polarized society. But the political system, even though the society is not polarized, the political system is pretty polarized. Nowadays in Spain, I've asked you about history and about things that have happened. Um, let me ask you about the future now. Um, do you think Spain is in danger of democratic backsliding? Well, if so, is not is not under a major risk that in other countries, because uh, there are many countries, democratic countries. That they are suffering a lot of pressure, you no? Know? And and I think that the democracy should be should be keep and should be conserved in many countries. Mm -hmm. But in the case of in the case of Spain, well, um, I would say that up to a certain point, uh, if if the if we don't take a moderate point of view and the consensus. And the, a little bit the spirit of the past, no, the spirit of the transition. Uh, the democracy could suffer a lot because of the behavior of the political of the political parties. Yes, unfortunately, I have to say, so, and I hope it's not going to to happen. But, but I, I we hope are so. At risk now, yes. Is that something that's talked? Is yes. that a fear that uh, people talk about? No, the fear, the main fears now is about the unity of the country. What is going to happen with Catalonia? Okay. Um, I would say that, well, most of people live in a daily life without perceiving the strengths and the weaknesses of the country. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, well, the main fear is, well, Catalonia and what is going to happen with the government. Um, most of the Spanish people want uh, 
center-right or a center-left government. Not the extreme ends. Not extreme. And yeah. the problem is that we are going to have a, an extreme, up, up to a certain point, an extreme government in the future if the situation uh, doesn't change. Doesn't resolve. Um, in closing, Dr. Ponce, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point uh, about Spain's modern history, what would that be? Well, the best point in our modern history with of that are the 60s and the 80s. I would say that there is a very good period of time for Spain. 60s and the 80s, okay. And the 80s, yeah, because of the economic and the social growth of the country. And even more, I would say that it, it, uh, there is a huge period of time from 1964, around that period, a year up to 2004 and this period was very very good for Spain in terms of becoming a democracy in terms of economic growth in terms of uh, a more complete and complex society and in terms of being a country integrated into the world in that period of time we enter into the NATO we enter into the United the, Nations. The, the, well, the United Nations was before in 1950. Uh, oh, 1950. Okay. 1950, but at, uh, at this time, well, the integration into the NATO and the integration into the European Community, and after that, the European Union was was uh, very important for the for the country, and not always we uh, because we were integrated into uh, into these um, inst international institutions. But also because up to 2004, we developed under socialist government and popular governments uh, a, foreign, a very interesting foreign policy. Foreign, foreign policy, okay. Foreign policy, yeah, addressing to keep the uh, 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 sphere of control, if we can say so, in the Western Mediterranean area, which is very important and is a very sensitive area for us, the axis that unites uh, Canary Island uh, and Balearic Island through the Strait of Gibraltar, this is very important for the security of Spain and also for the Western security. And mainly because at that time we developed a very a very good foreign policy with um, towards South America, and also with links, str very strong links with uh, the United States. I think that 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 period of time, mainly in the eighties, nineties, and the first years of the of the twenty first century, was a sort of golden age. Of golden age. Yeah, for the Spanish foreign policy. Unfortunately, after 2004, well, we keep a sort of foreign policy, but we don't have a very solid foreign policy uh, today. We, well, we keep the, the links with the United States and with Europe and so on, but <clears throat> which is our role in, in South America or which is our role in Africa or in other places. No? It seems that Spain has abandoned a little bit the foreign policy yeah. and only focused 
uh, into their their problems. You know? and, and I think that this is a this is a mistake. Well, hopefully Spain can return to its golden policy, uh, golden age, uh, both from a foreign policy point of view and also uh, culture and economics uh, in the very near future. Dr. Ponce, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Ponce. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>